evidence and answers. When you hear the term ambassador, you think of people who serve at foreign embassies, those who represent a country or a group of people. So when someone says they are ambassadors for Christ, what comes to mind? A disciple? A missionary? An evangelist, perhaps? What do you think? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, we begin with message one, taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's our keynote speaker and president of Stand to Reason Ministries, Greg Kokel, with part one of his teaching entitled, Ambassadors for Christ, Essential Skills. Now, I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but I want to make a kind of a prophecy tonight. Maybe we'll call it a prediction. Here's the prediction. There are some of you in the audience that are going to be looking back at this weekend and the time you spent here and the things that you learned, and you are going to count this weekend as a turning point in your life, a turning point in the way you understand Christianity a turning point in the way you're able to communicate your own convictions to other people, a turning point in your confidence of Christianity, and a turning point in the effectiveness you have in reaching other people. Now, why do I say that? Not because I have a supernatural gift, but I have heard this so many times from people who have come to conferences like this and who paid attention, who took notes, who arrived on time, who stayed, went the distance, and then began to employ the things that they learned. Look, we're going to work hard to give you some really good stuff, and we're going to try to throw the ball so you can catch it, all right? Some stuff is going to be a little harder than other stuff. It's okay. Some of you are going to get some, maybe not others, but I promise you that everybody is going to get something in the next two days, and if you come on Sunday morning, maybe the next three days, that is going to help you as a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to start by laying a foundation a little bit for, in a certain sense, the whole project of evangelism, the whole, what we call evangelism, but I'm going to try to put a little uh, different twist on it because in the last 20 years, there's been kind of a seismic shift in my own approach to the enterprise of bringing the good news that Jesus provides to us to people who desperately need it. Now, I became a Christian in 1973. That was a long time ago, and it was during the Jesus movement, and as a matter Matter of fact, in 1974 and 75, the summers, I was actually here in Waikiki preaching the gospel on the beaches with a bunch of other crazy young Jesus freaks, you know, sharing the gospel and talking to people about Christ and, and seeking to make a difference, and God really used that in a major way. But there was kind of a, an approach that we had then that I think has kind of been a, a received tradition over the years that I think we need to rethink a bit. Okay, and our approach was very direct. You go on the beach, you have a tract or something, you've got a little system for telling people about Jesus, you encounter people, and then you tell them the basic gospel, and then you ask them whether they want to pray to receive Christ. And so the goal was to get the simple gospel out and then try to get people to sign on the dotted line. 
And it turns out back then, like almost 50 years ago, when the culture was very different than it is right now, and the gospel was understandable to the rank and file, and the Holy Spirit was working in a very unique kind of way, not just in the islands, but also on the, uh, on the mainland in many places, a lot of people would respond and say, okay, I'm in. You know, you got to push back normally, and a lot of people that wouldn't, but you'd get people, and you'd come back after these events and say, yeah, we got some people that trusted the Lord and became Christian, okay? That was 50 years ago. But things have changed since then, as many of you know, and it's not that easy anymore. That is, the gospel's not simple anymore. I mean, it's the same message, but people don't understand it the way they understood it before, Okay and you tell them things about the basics, and they, it just does you know, I'm talking about, it doesn't register. They don't get it. It sounds like, like religious noise to them, okay? And not only that, there's a lot of pushback you're going to get from people, because a lot of folks have written books hostile to Christianity on their bestseller list, and most folks haven't read them, but they know they're there, and they think that the smart people have weighed in against Christianity and found it wanting. And so they're not inclined to take it seriously. And so there are those kinds of obstacles to people. But I'll tell you another obstacle. If I were to tell you that I was going to try to put together with the rest of the team here this weekend a method that you could take out and you could share with non-Christians so you can get them to sign on the dotted line. In other words, the idea was to go out and close the deal. Well, you take notes and you say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and then you would not do it. I'll tell you why you wouldn't do it. It's because the idea of going into our culture right now, as hostile as it is, and trying to get people to receive Christ, if you think of it that way, that's frightening. That sounds like trouble. That sounds like hostility. That sounds like argumentation. And, you know, like most people, and I'm with you on this, we don't want to get in fights with people. We don't want to have that kind of deal. We want to be faithful to Christ with the message, but we also have this difficulty. And so what we end up doing is we don't get in the game at all. We just stay on the bench, and we stay out of play. I understand that, and I'm sympathetic to that concern. So I want to tell you about something that happened to me. Well, it, was, it wasn't happening in a moment, but it was over a course of time, a realization that changed the entire picture for me, okay? And I'm going to give you a, just an aphorism, a one-line saying, so to speak. I want you to write down, and I want you to think about it. And this is what began to transform my entire approach to this. Here, here it is. Before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of, let's just call it gardening, all right? Before there can be a harvest in any individual person's life, before that person gets harvested, there's got to be a season of gardening. Now, 50 years ago, that season was a lot shorter. Not anymore, man. That, for most people, Almost nobody, in my experience, and people that I know, turn on a dime like that and go from being an unbeliever and bang, oh, I never heard that before. Okay, I'm in. That happens once in a while, but almost never. Instead, there's a whole lot of what Francis Schaeffer used to call pre-evangelism that needs to be in place. There's gardening time that needs to be in place before the harvest is ready. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, and I'm, even in my own life, I know that my younger brother was the one who shared Christ with me a lot. He was the gardener for the most part. But when I was ready, I was ready. When the fruit was ripe, September 28, 1973, bam, it fell right into the basket. Wow, just like that. Ripe fruit falls quickly. It's working on it so it gets ripe. That's another issue, okay? And so... 
before there could be a harvest, there's always got to be a season of gardening. And, and I began to think at my own, uh, my own life, as I look back on my life, I realized that most of the contribution that I have made as an individual Christian to the process of anybody coming closer to the Lord, and I'm, I'm looking at 27 years now in talk radio, taking questions and calls, a lot of public speaking and writing and stuff like that. But all of that time, I realized, you know, I'm not really a harvester. I'm not the guy who prays with somebody else to receive Christ. I'm not the harvester. I'm a gardener. What have I been doing? I've been gardening all of these years, a little here, a little there in somebody's life. And then down the line, I get somebody to come up to me at an event like this and say, you know what? I've been listening to you for years. I've been reading your stuff. And guess what? As a result of that, I became a Christian. And do I say, wait a minute, you mean somebody went into my garden and harvested my fruit? No. Do I care who harvests? No, I don't care. More power to you. And then I realized Jesus actually talked about this. It's in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And we know this story. But sometimes we forget what happened after the conversation, which is a great conversation. She goes off to Sychar. The disciples come in with some food. They hadn't been part of this conversation. And Jesus says this, you say there are three months and then comes the harvest. I tell you, look on the fields. They are white with harvest. Now, I don't think Jesus was saying every field is always white for harvest. I think he was talking about Sychar. And he was probably referring to all the people in their white robes coming across the field being led by the woman at the well to hear what this prophet had to say to her, right? And then he says this. He said, you are about to reap where you did not sow. You were about to reap. Somebody else did the heavy lifting. Man, you're going to get the easy pickage. You're going to get the low-hanging fruit. You got the easy job. Somebody else did the work. But then he says, so that the one who reaps and the one who sows can rejoice together. Oh, man, I like that. I like that. Two seasons in any individual's life. Two kinds of workers, one team. And that's the way it is here. So I just want you to think about something. It may be, and I'm, you know, this is a little controversial. I've gotten some pushback when I've talked about this. And usually the pushback I get is from harvester types. But I want you to think about it. Maybe your role in the enterprise is not harvesting. Maybe your role is in gardening. That's what I found out from my own life. And when I realized that, man, the pressure came off, and I changed my game plan. I changed my whole approach. And I'm concerned about a whole bunch of Christians who don't think they're harvesters, and so they're sitting on the bench when they need to be out in the field doing the what? Gardening. And you know, gardening, if you garden at all, you know it's a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. That's my approach. Now, tomorrow I'm going to talk more detail about the game plan, okay? But I have changed my goal. 43 years ago, I'm out of Waikiki Beach, and I'm looking for the clothes. I'm looking for the deal. I'm trying to get people to sign on the dotted line. That is not my approach now. Now I have a more modest goal, and I'm approaching the enterprise in a different way. I'm not thinking about being an evangelist. I am thinking about being an ambassador. Let me just say that again. I'm not thinking about being an evangelist. I'm thinking about being an ambassador. Am I trying to get the same goal accomplished? Absolutely. It's just changed my frame of mind, so my approach is now different. Now, I speak in a lot of secular environments. I've spoken on over 70 college and university campuses. 
spoke at UH last night, but it was mostly it was Christians that I was speaking to in that situation. But I speak to hospital audiences, and here's the way I start, no matter what it is I'm talking about. I always start the same way. I say, I'm here tonight, or this morning, or whatever the time was, because my life has been deeply changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And some 43 years ago, when I was a student at UCLA, I began to think more carefully about the claims that Jesus made about himself, about the way the world actually was, and the claim he made in my own life. And I began to think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more it got to me. Now, I didn't like it first. I'm pushing back. I had a lot of questions. But before too long, as I thought about it, I finally came to the conclusion that Jesus got it right, that he saw the world the way it really was. And the smartest thing that I could do is to tuck in behind him and follow him. And I've been doing that for 43 years. I've been trying to help other people to follow Jesus too. But I'm here to tell you tonight, and this is I'm talking to the audience, the secular audience. I'm not here tonight to convert you. I have a more modest goal. I just want to put a stone in your shoe. All right? Do you hear that? I just want to put a stone. I just want to annoy you in a good way. And they all start laughing when I say that like you did because they figure, eh, Christian's going to annoy me. And I say, okay, I'm your guy. But you'll thank me when I'm done. I want you hobbling out of here, that stone in your shoe, bothered in a good way about something I've said. I want you thinking because I think Jesus of Nazareth is worth thinking about. You see, and this is my goal now. My goal is not to get to the end game. It's not to close the deal. Do I want them to come to Christ? Of course I do. Is the gospel necessary for that? Of course. But, you know, sometimes the gospel comes in little bits and pieces and not a big kabammy. Think of Jesus. Did he always get to the gospel in every conversation? A lot of time he got to the bad news and he stopped there. And he let it sit for a long time and sink in before he comes to the good news. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about. A little here, a little there. Gardening trying to put a stone in their shoe, okay? So this is what I, I want to encourage you to think of this as a general approach, and you'll get some tools on how to do that from the different speakers here this weekend. And in tomorrow, I'll have a one session, tomorrow afternoon or early evening, I'll have one specifically giving you a step-by-step game plan on how to put a stone in somebody's shoe. I wrote a book about it. The book is called Tactics, a Game Plan for discussing your Christian convictions. So that'll be tomorrow. But I want to flesh out this idea of being an ambassador for Christ now in a little bit more of a thoroughgoing way. And Paul talks about this notion about being an ambassador in 2 Corinthians 5.20. might mark this. And by the way, whenever I mention a verse, mark it and go back. Don't just read the verse. Read above it and below it, okay? You got to get the whole thing. Make sure I'm playing fair with the Scripture, all right? Doesn't bother you a bit. I want you to do that. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Here's what Paul says. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were speaking through us, we beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want you to notice a couple of things about that. First, he says, we already are ambassadors. In other words, we are in a set of circumstances where we are God's ambassadors if we're followers of Christ. It's not we're going to go to a class and learn to be that. We are his representatives. And the nature of that relationship is that people don't see God, they see us. And when we speak, it's as though God were speaking through us. So in other words, think of this. You may be the only living Bible (laughs) that some people ever read. And you're thinking, that's a scary thought. Well, that's what I want you to think about. You're already an ambassador, for good or for ill. You're already communicating something to people around you. When I saw that, I realized, wow, if I already am an ambassador, what is the message that's coming across now from me to the people around me? Now, look, at I'm going to just tell you something right now. I am on my best behavior. 
I'm not going to do anything stupid or, you know, borderline because all, you're all watching. And I've been doing this radio show, and I generally stand, tend to be fairly calm when I get people that are really nasty to me. And people say, how could you stay so calm when people are so nasty to you? And I say, because the whole world's listening, man. It's not just me. There's a whole lot of people going to know. But what about when I'm at home? i got two daughters. i got a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. I know what you're thinking. He's got a 9-year-old, though. He's an old guy. That's right. I'm in my second Medicare year. Just, I can't really say it. It's too painful, but I'll just put it that way, all right? And now you're thinking, well, what's that poor guy going to do when that 9-year-old becomes a teenager? If I'm lucky, I'll be dead. Got it all worked out. So my question is, what kind of ambassador am I before my teenage daughters or before my wife? What am I telling them about God in the way that I'm behaving? Because I'm the ambassador, right? And so I thought, well, if I already am an ambassador, maybe I should try to be a better one. And I thought, what does it take to be a good ambassador? So I asked myself a question. You can ask it for yourself. If you were president or king or whatever, prime minister, and you had to send out an ambassador to represent you, what kind of qualities would you be looking for in that individual? I've done this with smaller groups. We list some things on the board. So it turns out all the particular things that you might think of are going to fall into one of three categories. Okay, first you're going to want somebody who knows something. Okay, they got to know what your message is, what you're going to communicate to other people. So there's a knowledge component. Okay. Second, though, you want your ambassador to take the knowledge out and communicate it in a powerful or an effective fashion, right? So what's another word for an ambassador that starts with a D? Audience participation time. Diplomat. Okay, so what is it important for a diplomat to be? Diplomatic. Okay, good. It's good. It's a good sign, Pastor. Okay, good. That's what I'm talking about. So there's an element of diplomacy in the way we maneuver in our conversations, okay? I'm just going to call that wisdom, kind of a tactical wisdom. So there's a knowledge component. There's a wisdom component. But if your ambassador has the knowledge that you give, the, who impart, that they want to impart to this people you're speaking to, and has the tactical ability to maneuver well in conversation, but turns out to be a womanizer or a drunk or just plain rude, you know, you can see now how the character is going to undermine the entire enterprise. So a good ambassador has qualities in three areas, knowledge, wisdom, and character. Pretty straightforward. Now, at Stand to Reason, the organization that I represent, we're all about building ambassadors. That's what we do. We train Christians to be better ambassadors for Christ in knowledge, wisdom, character. And here's how we characterize that. Knowledge is an accurately informed mind. Wisdom is an artful method. And character is an attractive manner. And in the, the time that I have left, I, I just want to briefly give you a little sketch of what it looks like in our culture to be a good ambassador for Christ in those three areas, knowledge, wisdom, character. Okay, so let's start with knowledge. Knowledge is an accurately informed mind. And here I mean that if you're going to be an ambassador for Christ and make a difference in the culture, you got to know something. you got to know the basics. you got to know the basics of the Christian view of reality, and you have to understand it in a way that you can communicate it in the context of a culture. Okay? I live in Southern California. That's a culture. They have a way of thinking and communicating, whatever. This is Hawaii. This is a different culture. 
I probably would not be too good spending a lot of time here because I'm kind of geared for a different kind of culture. But you here, you're here because this is your, these are your people. This is your place. This is where you live. This is, you know these folk. You know how to maneuver much better than I would. Okay? So it's not just knowing the truth. It is knowing how to communicate the truth in a way that's effective for the people in your community. So that's the knowledge component, okay? I want you to be aware when it comes to knowledge of two, I'm just going to call it strategic concerns about knowledge, all right? One, two, and here's the, and I'll develop them. Here they are. I want you to think on the one hand of defense and offense, defense and offense. So if you're a sports person, you know what I'm talking about. By the way, in sport, you know, Super Bowl, what wins Super Bowls, defense or offense? Tom Brady. Well, I'm not really a sports guy, and I did get really excited about the Cubbies. I would say that. There you go, Clive. You asked me about that. I did get really about the Cubbies. Defense wins. Oh, I know. The offense got to get the ball over. But you know the big defense. You've seen it in the last few Super Bowls, okay? I mean, that guy from the Patriots is pretty cool. I, I just I got really excited. I don't follow this stuff. I didn't even know who was playing. But I DVR'd it. I was gone for the weekend, and my 9-year-old said, Papa, can we watch the Super Bowl? I said, DVR it. And don't tell me who wins. And we'll watch it on Monday night, which is what we did, because that's when I got in from my trip. So uh, then I started rooting for the Patriots, and uh, that was just really great. But defense is really critically important, and offense is as well. So I want you to talk defense and offense, and then I want you to think, on the other hand, answers and questions, okay? What do I mean by defense and offense? Here's a verse you can mark down, Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9. And here's what Paul says. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, instead of according to Christ. Oh, man, that's magical. I didn't know that. You have that up there. Good for you. In other words, he's not against philosophy. I got a master's degree in philosophy. It's really helped me a lot as a follower of Christ. He's against the philosophies of men. There's a worldview out there that human beings have, and then there's a way that Jesus saw the world, and guess who got it right? Jesus gets it right. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't want to go following some other path, but rather following the way Jesus saw the world. That's what you want to do. And so Paul is saying, be careful. Be on the what? Defense. We're going to have a strong line here. We don't want the bad ideas to come in. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be exposed to the bad ideas. We should be exposed to them. I'll talk about that in a moment. It's just we don't want them to capture our minds. And by the way, it's going to be a very difficult thing for us to defend against the wrong ideas unless we have some idea of what the wrong ideas are. Now, next session for me, it'll be the last session this evening, I'm going to talk about relativism. And you all know what this is, even if you've not heard this word before. But I'm going to talk about how it's hard for Christianity and how you can defend against it. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You have a good defense. Don't let the bad ideas come in. And again, you've got to know what the bad ideas are by contrasting them with the true ideas. And so you see you need some knowledge. <laughs> but there's more than just the defense. Paul says you've got to have a good offense too, because both are really necessary. And you read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 3 through 5, I like it when Paul says, somewhere it says, he couldn't remember either. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. I'm quoting from the New American Standard here, so there's some differences to what you may have. 
Wow, this is spiritual warfare. This is cool stuff, man. I'm re- wow, I like that. Rare to go. Well, keep reading because I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding about what the New Testament teaches principally about spiritual warfare. They think of it as power encounters, and I don't think that's Paul's view. And prayer is really critical and all that, but Paul is getting at something else here. Next line. We are casting down speculations. What's a speculation? Like a theory? We are casting down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now here, I don't think Paul is talking about having pure thoughts. We should do that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about having accurate thoughts about God and reality. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and of course your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 o